Today is January 21st. That means that only four weeks ago, people were discussing their need for uh, New Year's resolutions and all of the commitments that they were going to make. Research from Ohio State University reveals that only 9% of Americans that make New Year resolutions will in fact keep them at the end of the year. In fact, the research gets a little bit concerning when we look at when people begin to lose these commitments. By the end of the first week in January, 23% of people who made New Year resolutions will have lost them altogether. And only a week away, by the end of January, 43% will have dropped their New Year resolutions. Now, I have a bitter hate relationship with New Year resolutions. I think that there's a lot of good inside of them. People making commitments to better themselves, to change their lives, to resolve, to improve their discipline, whatever it is, I think this is a good thing because it requires, first of all, that we're not yet where we want to be. Are you where you want to be in your spiritual life? I hope not. I hope you see that there's a need to be committed to growth, a constant growth. So I think this is a good thing. And then people put into action practical steps, things they can do. In spiritual terms, a lot of Christians will make New Year resolutions to read through the whole Bible in a year or to be more disciplined in reading their Bible at all or just to be faithful to pray regularly. These are good commitments. I said, though, that I have a love-hate relationship with New Year resolutions. Because more often, New Year resolutions are not used as a means of spurring growth. Rather, they're used as an excuse the rest of the year not to start that growth then. Think about it. How many people have made New Year resolutions to get healthy in the new year? All the while, when... November rolls around and they're sitting around the table with their family at Thanksgiving taking seconds and thirds. They say, I can't wait for the new year. I'm going to get healthy. They sit around at Christmas and they eat pudding and they eat until their bellies are sick. And they say, but I tell you what, January 1st, I'm really going to change what I'm doing. I like New Year resolutions because they put people in the mindset of pursuing growth. I don't like them because they tell people that they need to wait for a special event or some magical moment to make these commitments. The Bible teaches us that we can make such commitments in our lives at any point. And in fact, at the moment that we are convicted of something that needs to change in our life, that's the moment that we are to be obedient. We're not to put it off. We're not to wait. But we're supposed to act with immediacy. Speaking of growing in spiritual terms, do you realize that this need to grow is not just a recommendation or something that we might want to do from the Bible? But if we look at 2 Peter 3, verse 18, this is a command found in Scripture that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a command to obey, not an option that we have. Well then, how do we grow? That's the question I want to ask this morning. How do we grow spiritually? If this is our goal, and if we don't have to wait for 2025 to apply this, if we could apply this today, maybe we're in that group that maybe wanted to begin growing spiritually in 2024, but 
we're with the 23% of other people that made such commitments, and we stopped doing that the first week of this year. Maybe we're in that 43%. We're beginning to become fatigued or give out. You don't have to wait for 2025 to start over. We can make this commitment today. We can grow in the Lord today. And I want to answer, how can we do that? For those of you that have been along, we are currently going through a study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we haven't even got to the book of 1 Thessalonians yet. I'm glad you guys are starting to realize how funny that is. We did get to Thessalonica last week. We're looking at the book of Acts so that we can understand the background and the circumstances. Those things that we call context that help to illuminate the text. That way when we get to 1 Thessalonians, we won't be ignorant of the things that took place while Paul and the other missionaries were there. But we would understand the circumstances and experiences that they had with the people they are writing to. So far, we followed Paul as he was directed by the Spirit to go through this Asia region, which wound up leading him to Europe, the ancient districts or regions of Macedonia and Achaia, modern-day Europe. And here, Paul has gone to Philippi, and he had some bad times at Philippi. He was thrown in jail. He left Philippi. He traveled three days. He wound up in Thessalonica. He was only there for maybe a month, maybe two months, a very short time, and a church was planted. But the Jews became uh, jealous, and they ran him out of town. That brings us to Acts chapter 17, verse 10. Let's pray before we read where we left off that God would help us to understand this text. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word, not just as stories or fables or history, but as truth to be believed and applied to our lives. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we might be able to behold the wondrous truth found in your law. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The Bible says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, those Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The missionary journey so far that we've been looking at brings Paul into this region of Macedonia, and we can see Paul's journey along this little green line that is on the screen in front of us this morning. This green line's the Ignatius Way. It's a major trading line for the people of Rome. And after Paul was 
persecuted in Philippi. He moves along the Ignatius Way to Thessalonica. But realize there was something different about the kind of agitation in Thessalonica that we looked at last week. The agitation was such that the brothers needed to leave by night in secret and in darkness. And as a result, they did not continue to follow this major trade route, but instead they went to a place called Berea, a city south of Thessalonica and off the Ignatius Way, off the main training road. Berea would have been about three days' journey. And when they arrived there, our text tells us, as was Paul's custom, In verse 10, that Paul went into the Jewish synagogue and he began to work with these Jewish people, preaching to them again the same gospel that had been preached in Philippi and the same gospel that had been preached in Thessalonica. And he tried to reason with them. He follows the same method that we looked at last week where he opens up the scriptures and he explains the scriptures and he allows dialogue and discourse so that people can begin to understand it and be persuaded and even be convinced. And the text makes a note about these Jews in in Berea. Verse 11 says that these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. What does it mean to be more noble? This word, if we look at different translations, sometimes it is translated as noble-minded. Now, the Greek word actually means noble or of high birth, but we know by looking at the text, understanding what it means, that this isn't a reference to somebody's birthplace or the way that they were raised. This is a reference to their character, the way that they are going to interact with the things that Paul says. He says that those Jews were more noble-minded, that they had a character of wanting to understand, They wanted to grow. They wanted to understand what Paul was saying, and if it was true, they wanted to be committed to it. And this brings up, I think, what is the greatest hindrance to growth, especially in spiritual terms. I had a manager at Walmart that used to say, I know what I know, but I don't know what I don't know. I think it was a movie quote or something. There's a lot of wisdom in that little passing phrase. I don't know the things that I don't know. I don't even know the things that I need to learn. How am I going to grow if I don't know the things that I need to know? If I major on the things that I already know, how will I possibly grow because I already know those things? Don't I need to learn new things in order to grow? And maybe I've lost you. Some confusing language. I'm thinking through it in my head how I would write that down, and the punctuation is truly a nightmare. But I think you guys understand the meaning. The greatest hindrance to growth is that we are not open to being challenged. We're not open to what we believe being held up to the scrutiny of true understanding. This, I think, is what makes growing so difficult. To grow starts with holding space to be challenged. This means that 
We are not committed to what we believe or what we want to believe or what we want to do or what we don't want to do. Rather, we are committed to truth. This is what makes Christianity a distinctive from all other world religions. Christians are not committed to what they've been taught. Christians are not committed to what they think they know. Christians are committed to the pursuit of truth. It's a very noble pursuit. And this is why Paul tells, says that the Bereans, sorry, that Luke says that the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They were committed to truth. They were ready to hold these kinds of conversations with each other and allow their views and their understanding to be challenged. You know, when we talk about spiritual growth, there's an image that shows up many times throughout the Bible. In the book of Hebrews, the author writes that we should already be eating the meat, but instead we're still suckling the milk. This idea of spiritual nourishment that comes from truth, that helps Christians to grow, uses the image of a baby drinking milk and an adult eating meat. How do we know the difference? Even when we look at Paul's use of the same image in 1 Corinthians, he explains to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 1.26 that they should consider their calling he writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Again, using that same word, noble, that we see in our text. The Corinthians, however, were not only not of a noble background, they were not of a noble mind like the Bereans. For Paul goes on in the same book, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. But I, brothers could not address you as a spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For where there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Think what the exhortation that we can pull out of this. And looking at the Bereans and their noble mind and contrasting it with the Corinthians and their not so noble mind is that being able to endure challenges to our faith or what we believe is actually what prompts growth. It's actually what causes change. Do you know why New Year resolutions fail? People don't really want to change. We like the word growth, don't we? I want to grow, but I don't want to change. What if I told you that these are really one and the same thing? There is nothing in this world that grows that does not change. Well, just think about it with your houseplants. When you water them and you feed them and you put them in the sunlight and you turn them, do they look the same every day? No, they change. Sometimes it's not for the better. <laughs> we don't call that growth. We just call that change. But when they grow, when they bloom, they don't look the same anymore. They're totally different. In fact, the leaf that you were looking at that was so admirable and beautiful pales in comparison to the blossom that opens up, and it becomes the focus point of all of your attention. 
All things, when they grow, change. I was noticing just this week, Charlotte sitting on the couch, how much her little face has changed. It's changed so much. She no longer looks like a, a little, little toddler. Now she, she's starting to look like a little girl. There's nothing I can do about it. I want her to grow. I have to admit that that also means that she will change. Nothing in this world grows without changing. Unfortunately, people don't count the cost whenever they make commitments to grow. Wind up in the change cycle. Uh, This is probably hard to see on the screen, but we begin in a place of frustration, recognizing that there is a need for change inside of us, that something is wrong. And eventually that builds up to our breaking point. And we make a resolution saying, now that I've come to this breaking point, the pain of changing is now less than the pain of not changing. I'm going to commit to this. And we realize everything that comes with that. If we change, we might have to also change the way that we act, the way that we think the way that we believe. We might have to do things that we're not currently doing. We might have to stop doing things that we are currently doing. Well, that makes me afraid. And then fear has this wonderful ability to cause a sense of amnesia to build up within us. And we forget all about this breaking point that led to this resolution. And so instead, we just put the blinders on and we quit growing at all. You know what's really amazing about fear? People have the uncanny ability to make shortcuts in this change cycle where they can go from a place of blindness and jump straight to fear. They'll skip the resolution and the breaking point altogether. They'll just keep the blinders on so that there's no need to grow. This is what happens when Christians find themselves in a rut. And you know what a rut is? A rut's just a grave with both ends kicked out. How we respond when our thoughts, beliefs, and traditions are challenged reveals where we are in this cycle. There are people that respond to their beliefs or what they want to believe being challenged in a closed-off and shut-off way. This is the way that the Jews in Thessalonica responded. They came to the point where they were committed. I already know what I want to believe. Don't try to confuse me with your facts, they said. And they instigated riots in Thessalonica to run the people out. There's people that have a veiled interest, but they don't really give any true hearing. Here's what I mean by this. They hear something that challenges them and they sit back and they're very diplomatic. This is normally the older crowd. They sit back and it looks like they're listening. But really what they're doing is they're thinking in their mind of all the ways that they can contradict and critique what is being said. They scrutinize. Loved ones, there's a big difference between listening critically and listening to be critical. A true hearing allows someone not only to hear what they don't agree with, but also the things that they do agree with. Just like New Year's resolutions. 
We can take the good and leave the bad. There's nothing that says that we have to commit to making a resolution on January 1st. We can make a New Year resolution on January 21st. We can take the bad. We can take the good and leave the bad. So is the same when our thoughts, beliefs, and traditions are challenged. A third example would be the example that we find in our text of the Bereans. They were noble-minded. They were eager to receive the Word. They examined the Scriptures daily. These people had not only an open mind, but they were interested. They leaned in. They wanted to learn because they wanted to grow. They granted space to be challenged. Why do we respond in these different ways? I believe uh, this is... Well, I I believe that all of us have been in all three of these categories, being closed off like the Thessalonians, being fake and being interested, and also being open-minded and interested. I think we've all done that, all three of them. I know I've done all three of them. The question is, why do we respond in these different ways? Why do people fear change? We justify it with all sorts of means. We say, I don't like the source. I don't like the person who is challenging me. I don't like, uh, I don't like where it's coming from. We say that, well, I'm in a good direction right now, and maybe I should just stay faithful to doing it this way. Evaluate yourself for a second. If you're stuck in a rut, if your spiritual condition's not growing, if you're not changing, what kind of a direction are you on? You're stagnant. You're not moving. We say, well, I've always believed differently. I think it all comes down to, despite all those justifications, all those clever ways that we try to build up a case for why we don't need to be challenged, that people end up resisting growth in their life because they are afraid of change. They fear what it's going to change in their life. They fear how they're going to be different. This is the case, I believe, for for many people before they come to the faith, the people that sit in the pews and they hear the gospel message and they're trying to draw near to church and the Spirit's working on their heart, but they resist it. They resist it because what does it mean if I make a commitment to this church? What does it mean if I make a commitment and call Jesus Lord of my life? Will I have to change? You will have to change. And it's for your benefit that you will have to change. It's called growth. This isn't a decaying houseplant. This is a blooming houseplant. This is growth. We say, I like the way things are. I like doing what I'm doing. I don't want to do the things that I'm not doing. I want to believe what I want. Are we committed to the truth or ourselves? You know, the Sunday school lesson this morning spoke a great deal about idolatry. You know what the greatest idol is that exists in the American church? It's self. Our biggest idol is ourselves. Think about everything that I just said. I like the way things are. I like doing what I'm doing. I don't want to do things that I'm not doing. I want to believe this way. 
Christians are not an I kind of people. Christians are a Christ kind of people. It's in the name. Christians. We're Christians. We follow Christ. We obey His commandments even when it challenges us. Even when it makes us uncomfortable. Can I tell you something? If you're committed to reading the Bible, you'll run across things that make you uncomfortable. You'll run across things and you'll read them and you'll say, well, I don't think that's very loving. It's not loving according to the way that you define love. But guess what? The way that you define love is broken and marred by a fallen condition. You want to love people? Love people the way that God tells us to love people. You want to live a life that reflects Jesus Christ in all that you do? Be committed to allowing yourself to be challenged. Read the Bible with an open mind, not a closed mind. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter how long you've been with Christ. It doesn't matter how many things you think you know because you don't know the things that you don't know. We have to have an open mind when we're coming to Scripture because it's not about us. And if you want to grow, you have to be committed to being challenged. Now let me clarify what I mean when I say that we need to have an open mind because I've also heard it said that we should have an open mind but not so open that our brain falls out. There's another side to this. We have to be resolved to submit to Scripture. That means resolve to commit to Scripture. When somebody tells us something that challenges us, we don't just believe it and take it with us. We also don't refute it without evidence. We don't refute it without cause. We don't refute it without explanation. And we don't go off on a tangent trying to prove our point with proof text. These things are unfruitful. They don't help us. I love the Internet theologians that like to argue over things. and Everyone has a proof text. Not everyone's right. If you want to really contend from Scripture, we have to do, as Paul says, use the whole counsel of God. Not just the things that affirm what we want. But we have to wrestle with how the things that disagree with us reconcile with the things that we already know. Scripture is not going to contradict itself. I love the example of the Bereans. How are they more noble in mind? It wasn't just that they were open-minded, but verse 11 goes on. They received the word with, with all eagerness. They examined the Scriptures daily. They, they took these things and they evaluated them against God's word, not just the people that agreed with them. Remember, they allowed themselves to be challenged. Paul gives a stark warning to the church in Galatia. He says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. To Timothy, he wrote, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. There are certain things that do not change and that do not move. The gospel is not going to change. Now, we run an unfortunate discourse or unfortunate uh, circumstance when we don't know what things define the gospel and what things define our tradition. The gospel is pretty simple. Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, came to earth in the form of a baby, lived the perfect life, died as a payment for the sins of all who would believe in Him, was resurrected into heaven, and is Lord. 
Everyone needs a Savior because they were born a sinner. The gospel is not that complicated. As long as these things don't change, the gospel is sound. There's all sorts of other things that can change, though. There's all sorts of other questions that we have to wrestle with when we read Scripture. There's all sorts of other questions that we have to really dig into to try and understand. And it's not an easy work. It's, it's a lot of work. There's, that's, that's the reason they call it work. It's work. And we can't do it by ourselves. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us and to help us to understand things, to have an open mind, to approach things that challenge us. So why don't we do this? Why isn't this our regular practice? Fear is part of it. We mentioned that. But why don't we allow the Scripture to be examined? Are we afraid that if we test the gospel that it will be found to be lacking in truth, that it will be unconvincing? I've got good news. Scripture is not only true, all true, it's also reasonable. It's reasonable. Our rational brains can actually handle scrutinizing the Bible. God's Word is so secure, so lacking in contradiction, so infallible, so true, that even when we scrutinize it, truth will come out. Are we worried that if our faith was tested that we would be found lacking? I think that's a very real concern. We, we know these things to be true and reasonable. The gospel can withstand our scrutiny and so can our faith if it is in the right thing. If it is in the Lord Jesus Christ, our faith can withstand scrutiny. Growth is change. Nothing stays the same when it grows. A city can't stay the same when it grows. Just think about it. When a city grows, new buildings go up, new roads come in. That's called growth. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes we don't like it. You know, we talk about how we want the church to grow. I often hear people pray, Lord, grow your church. I love that prayer. Do we really want it? Just think about it. What does it mean if our church grew? That means that new people would come in. New people would join with us. And new people means new ideas, new challenges, new passions, new burdens, new ministries potentially. It could reshape the way that the church does ministry. It could change the way that we do things. Well, I don't know about that. If they're joining us, they should just do things the way that we've always done them. You're the problem. In leadership, as a principle, this is always the case. Anytime you hire somebody new to join your team, the culture of that team changes. It's the same in the church. We have new sin problems, new things that we need to address, new concerns. These things have to come out of the church growing, and this is what's beautiful about the church. It's not stagnant. It's not a decaying houseplant, but it's growing. This is part of what it means for the bud to sprout, for the flower to blossom, for Christ to be glorified in the work that He does. Change, when it's growth, is good. Our faith cannot grow if it is not allowed to change. 
You can't grow as a Christian if you do not allow your faith to be challenged, if you do not open yourself up to these opportunities, if you do not find yourself completely resolved to let Scripture be the authority in your life. Because there's a good chance, and I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to all of you, that we hold beliefs that need to be challenged by Scripture. It doesn't matter how orthodox we are. If we want to grow, we have to allow this challenge into our lives and we have to be submissive to Scripture, not our own opinion. The example of the Bereans, they received the word with eagerness. Paul preached to them and they ate it up. They were eager to hear from the word of God, but they didn't take him at his word for it. They examined the Scripture daily. Guys, think about the context. We've got it easy. How many of you get to go home with a Bible? Wow, we have a lot of Bibles in the back. A lot of you didn't raise your hand. I want to make sure you leave here with a Bible. Let me ask again, though. How many of you get to go home with a Bible? That's a lot better. In the first century, the printing press wasn't around. People didn't have Bibles. If they did, they were expensive. And when we're talking about Scripture, we're talking about the book of the law, which was actually a scroll. We're talking about the histories, which was actually a scroll. And we're talking about the prophets, which was actually a scroll. In order for people, for the Bereans to, as Luke writes, examine the Scripture daily, they had to go to the synagogue. And they had to open up what's called the ark, this cabinet where these three scrolls were stored. And they had to pull them out. And they had to unroll them. And there was only one for all of the Bereans that joined together. They had to unroll them and they had to examine them together. That's how committed they were to submitting to the authority of Scripture because they knew it was true. They knew it was reasonable. They were eager to receive Paul's word. And so they wanted to dig into it and they wanted to prove it for themselves. The things that they thought they knew, they wanted to look at them in this new light, this new way of understanding. They wanted to allow Scripture to interpret itself. They wanted to remove their opinion so that Scripture could speak for itself. Aren't we guilty? of putting ourselves into Scripture too fast. That's an easy thing to do. Well, what does this say to me, Lord? I'm reading the Bible so that I have an application for my, my life. We should do all of those things, but that comes at the end of examining Scripture. We start by letting the Scripture speak for itself. We understand it in the appropriate context. For example, when I read that they examine the Scripture daily, I don't imagine them going to their home and opening up their Bibles. They didn't do that. History helps us to see how significant it is that they did this. In fact, it spurs me to be even more faithful because I have the ability to go home and open the Bible for myself, to examine it for myself. This is what growth's about, guys. Granting space to be challenged, resolving to submit to Scripture. But there's also a warning. There's also something insidious that inhibits growth. That isn't just our fear. There are those people who are closed-minded. If you really want to grow, you have to oppose intolerant people. 
You have to oppose them. You have to withstand them. You have to protect yourself from them. That is why Paul, when writing to Timothy, uses language like guard, protect. You have to oppose intolerant people. How quickly do we make the jump from, I've already made my mind up about this, don't confuse me with your facts, to, I'm not going to believe this, Nobody is going to believe this. I'm not going to hear this. Nobody is going to hear this. I'm not going to accept this. Nobody is going to accept this. Just like the Jews in Thessalonica who upon hearing that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul came down three days journey into Berea to stir up and agitate the same way that they had done in Thessalonia to the Thessalonians. They came down and they began to stir up the crowds. If you really want to grow, it's not enough that you allow yourself to be challenged. It's not enough that you let Scripture to be the authority for itself. You must protect yourself from those that are intolerant. Those that are closed-minded. Those that will not hear. Those who, rather than making a case for what they believe, will just say, I've always believed that way. I'm not saying we run these people out of the church or out of our fellowships. In fact, I'm I'm glad that they're here. We should be glad that they're here. They need the Word of God. In fact, they need the Spirit of God to soften their heart, to show grace towards people who challenge them, who want the best for them. Guys, the people that you surround yourself with matters a great deal to how you will grow in your walk with God. It does. It matters a great deal. If you surround yourself with people who are cantankerous and bitter, what will end up happening is you will become afraid to share anything that you find in the Word of God. Afraid because you might be put down. You shouldn't be afraid of being wrong. Allow yourself to be challenged. When we challenge each other, do we do it gracefully? Do we do it with the love of Christ? Do we do it mercifully? (coughs) The Jews that came down into Berea only came to stir up trouble. We should be opposing such people. They live in a rut. And we know what a rut is. If we don't want to live in that rut, if we want to be a growing people, if we want to be a people who are pursuing God and want to understand all the things of Scripture, if we want our faith to be alive, if we want to experience real revival in the church, if we want to experience restoration and communion with God and close fellowship, we have to grant space to be challenged. We have to resolve to submit to Scripture as the only authority in our lives, and we have to oppose those that are intolerant. We cannot allow intolerance to be the voice of the church. You guys, there's a cause and effect in our text this morning. The people examined Scripture. They were eager to receive it. The Word was proclaimed to them. And what does verse 12 say? Many of them therefore believed. 
Because they allowed themselves to be challenged, because they submitted to the authority of Scripture, many of them believed. This is the same thing that Jesus' half-brother James writes in the book of James. Chapter 1, verses 9, 19 through 21 say, Know this, my beloved brothers, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and gentleness, receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. When we commit ourselves to growing, to pursuing Christ-like maturity, to being conformed to the image of Christ, this word that we submit to implants in our very hearts the ability for our soul to be saved. The Bereans who were noble-minded, who were eager to receive the word of God, who examined the scriptures daily, many of them believed. This isn't just the foundation of our belief, though. This is the foundation of our life in Christ and transformation and working. We have to, we have to continue to work alongside other people. I said we should oppose those who are intolerant, but let me give you one more piece of of help in our pursuit of growth. We have to work alongside those who challenge us. Were you surprised that it was a W? We have to work alongside those who challenge us. Notice that after being ran out of Berea, the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. Now, we've got this missionary journey, and this is kind of a subtext in this narrative, but we have these four men, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, traveling together through this region of Europe. And they're all working together for one common purpose, the purpose of the church, to proclaim the gospel to the heathen, to bring people into fellowship with God, to help them and equip them to grow. And this work, I think, is magnificent if we follow the missionary movements. And we kind of have to look all over the place to piece this together. But what we find is Paul and Silas, I'm sorry, Paul and Luke are taken out of Berea, and it says that they take them as far as the sea. It's not on the map that I'm sharing with you all, but Athens is south of Achaia. So they take them south, but Paul and Silas remain in Berea. We assume because they're continuing to help answer questions, continuing to participate in this, remember that word from last week, dioligami, this dialogue with the believers. They're continuing to help them to grow and to equip them in the faith. Silas and Timothy remain in Berea. But we find in our text that Paul commanded those brothers that brought him out of Berea to bring Silas and Timothy back to him. They took him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. So Silas and Timothy stay in Berea for a time. This would have been six days' journey about, however far they would have come. And they were going to rejoin with uh, Paul and Luke. They go into Athens, and this is where we'll be next week. We'll be looking at Paul's discourse in Athens. And some of you might be asking, well, why in the world are we still in Acts? We've already reached Thessalonica. Isn't it time that we go to the book of 1 Thessalonians? We're almost there. 
I want to take us to the point that Paul wrote the letter, which is after he preaches in Athens. It's after he goes into Corinth. Because what's going to take place is Silas and Timothy rejoin Paul, and Timothy is going to be sent back to check on the believers in Thessalonica. Silas is going to be sent up to the believers in Philippi to check on the church that was taking shape there. After that, Silas and Timothy will return to Paul in Corinth. And it's upon these reports, it's upon hearing these good reports, that Paul is going to write two letters. The letter to the Philippians and the letter to the Thessalonians. That brings us to the text that we're getting ready to study, that we're building up to, and we'll look at that next week. But one thing I want us to see is that after receiving word that they should come back to him, after they went back and strengthened these churches, they worked together. The believers didn't think that they were the only one who was capable of achieving God's will or knowing God's will. They wanted people to be challenged. They wanted them to grow. They wanted them to submit to the authority of Scripture. They wanted them to be insulated and protected from those who were intolerant, both in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. They wanted them to grow. I want to share this with you. This quote from Brett McCracken comes from a a book called Uncomfortable. The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christianity. We grow most when we are outside of our comfort zones. We are more effective when we are on the edge of risk. We hold beliefs more dear and pursue goals more passionately when they are accompanied by cost. Jesus taught that no man should begin the journey of discipleship without first counting the cost. I think for many Christians, we say we want to grow, but we're afraid of change. Why are you afraid of change? Do you not know that changing is for your betterment? Do you not know that God's will for our lives glorifies Him whenever we experience His blessing? Do you not know that change is good for us? If we truly want to grow, we cannot be resolved to believe the things that we have always believed. We must protect the gospel at all costs but we must grow beyond the essentials. We must contend in the areas of grayness. We have to pursue God with earnestness and zeal. And I know that it's scary. I know that it's scary to admit that we're wrong to admit that we can't do it by ourselves, to admit that even today we still need a Savior. But let me contend with you 
with just one passing phrase. You should be more afraid of not growing. You should be more afraid of being stuck. You should be more afraid of seeing Christ someday in heaven and having to answer for the listlessness, for the lack of zeal, for the lack of initiative, for the lack of earnestness. He didn't give us the church for our own benefit. He gave us the church to glorify Him. When we do the things that we've always done without any thought, without any action, without any evaluating, without any instigation, without any help, without looking at Scripture to be the authority and the authority alone, who do we serve? Do we serve God or ourselves? I would be afraid to answer to God if that was the way I lived my life. I might be afraid of change, but I'm more afraid of that. If you want to grow, I've given you an acronym to remember it. I know that you don't remember my sermons, that I preach too long, and that you leave here and you forget everything that I said and every single reference to Scripture. You might be able to remember we were somewhere in Acts chapter 17 and that that funny joke about 1 Thessalonians and we're still in Acts. If that's the 20% that you remember, just remember 21% more. Remember the need for growth. If you want to grow, grant space for challenge Allow people to challenge what you believe. Resolve to commit to Scripture. More than yourself, resolve to commit to Scripture as the only authority in your life. Oppose people who are intolerant. Don't allow yourself to listen to them. Don't tolerate. Don't stand in it. Don't allow it to take place because it cuts off not only your ability to grow, but it cuts off the, the community's ability to grow too. Do not give a voice to people who are intolerant. Work alongside people who are challenging you. I think Bill Gates said something about this. When he hires people, he hires people that challenge him. He doesn't want people that do what they say. He wants people that try their hardest to think about things and to think for themselves and to offer different perspectives. There's not only worldly wisdom in that, because Bill Gates is very worldly. There's spiritual wisdom in that. Father in heaven, I pray that we would be a growing church. I pray that we would be a church of your people called out from the world around us to serve you. I pray that as individuals, we would be committed to growing. God, that we would not only be interested in perspectives and beliefs that challenge ourselves, but that we would be eager to listen to them, that we would be patient in listening to them, that we would be slow to anger and slow to speak, that we might be able to take this implanted word in our heart and that we might be able to save our souls, Lord. God, I thank you for saving us with your word, with the simple gospel, and for giving us a journey in this life that isn't stagnated, that hasn't stopped 
that doesn't end when we're baptized, but that it carries over for the rest of our life. God, I pray that you would help us to enjoy this journey and everything that it is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing number 371.